With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Once again, the Tennis.com podcast. It's Wednesday, April 2nd. I am Ed McGrogan talking with Steve Tigner uh, about tennis coming up. Tennis has already happened this week, this post-Miami uh, week. We're now into green clay, soon to be red clay, and then in between that, a bunch of different services because it's Davis Cup. It, it, it's tennis at its finest, really, there. So, Steve, sort of the the big news of this week, which I thought might have been a slow week, and maybe it still is depending on your point of view on it, is Serena going down to um, going down in her opening match at Charleston 6-4, 6-4 to, to Yana Sepulova. Um, you did catch some of this, you know, this is so early for Serena in this event. You think of it this way, the event wasn't even televised yet. So it, I think you caught some of the online feed, though. So really, you know, what did you see in this match? And, you know, just kind of specifically Serena, but of course her opponent as well. Yeah, I saw from probably the middle of the first set on, um, Serena started out really poorly, missing a lot, missing pretty much everything. She's done that in her last two matches and done that in her last two matches in Miami as well against Lina and Maria Sharapova, but she'd come back to win. This time she went down love five to Sepalova, a player that Serena had said she'd hardly even seen before, ranked number seventy eight. Um then Serena started to come back and you thought she can't you know, got maybe halfway back in the in the first set and it looked like, you know, maybe she wouldn't even lose another game. But um Sepalova Closed the set out, and then Serena started to limp a little bit. She had her left thigh strapped, and then it seemed like she couldn't really. She had trouble deciding how much she wanted to be there, and how much she wanted to win the match, and whether she, you know, wanted to push herself physically. Um, at times, she seemed to be into it, and other times, not. She said afterwards that she really needed a break, um, which is not a great sign since she really had just played one tournament in the last month in Miami, and she's. She says she felt, you know, like she needed to get away, and that it's been a long. She's had a long two years, so I don't know if that, what that indicates for her in the future. I mean, as obviously right now she wasn't ready for this tournament. Whether that's some sort of more burnout from a lot of tennis, more tennis than she used to play over the last year or so, last two years, you know, we'll see. Uh, um, yeah, like you I said, she. It's a, I, th- I said, like you said, she. I think she said she just felt like hell after after the match there and this is a tournament that she's you know the past two years she's won and and she's done this miami charleston double you know a a few times so it it was surprising in that sense even if 
I think you can write off a lot of this to just to just getting back and um, you know just having that big run in Miami. That and then again looking for her in the future. I mean, she's not even going to be probably playing again um, until Madrid, I would guess. You know, it's not like on the men's tour where you're going to see a lot of the top players going to Monte Carlo. So Serena will get. You know, quite a big break after this, I believe, as well. Um, you know, it might be a Stuttgart. I'm, I'm forgetting about, but I think she has, you know, some time off after this as well. Yeah, she usually plays Madrid, which isn't for another month, and then Rome, and then Paris. Last year, she won all of those. Um, she, um, and she, you know, this is the tournament. The past two years that she's sort of kicked off a pretty strong clay court run. She wasn't into it this time. Um, so we'll see. Uh, hopefully, it's not a sign of her, you know, a longer-term burnout from her. That's, you know, I guess, that's the only question you might have after this match. L- last thing about this, you know, what did you see from Sepulova? From the, I mean, I don't know if this is your first time watching her any extended amount of time as well, but you know, what did she uh, do well? What's her game like? Yeah, I've seen her play a couple times in qualifying. The only thing that was that I really noticed about her was um, that she wore her whereas her visor slightly askew, a la Donald Young. Um, she also had a pretty good run at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. And she, you know, she can play. So credit to her for finishing the match. Serena was still giving it, giving it her best in the last game and trying to survive at the end, and Sepulova didn't miss. She, you know, she held it out. She held out. Um, but, you know, she, she looks good. She's only 20. She's ranked 78. She hasn't had the results that some of the other 20-year-olds had, but she has a nice forehand and, and obviously has a solid enough game to to stay with Serena. This tournament is actually turning into a huge exodus for Americans. You know, today, we've seen Madison Keys lose. Uh, Sloan Stevens was the first domino of today to fall, losing, I think, first match on uh, to Avitis Fidelina. Um, you know, she goes down, uh, and specifically, I think the, the concern has to be raised about Sloan after what we saw from her in Miami, which is practically nothing in her match against Wozniacki. Um, you know, it's it's a question we bring up time and time again, but this does seem like a particularly low point for Stevens in her, you know, really inability to kind of build consistency on from week to week and tournament to tournament. Yeah, Sloan, you know, she really bottomed out in Miami, um, gave a pretty poor, you know, really poor effort against Wozniacki. This was better. On the one hand, the positive is that this was a better effort, even though she went down early, 1-5, quickly to Svitolina. This this was a better effort from her, so that's a positive. The negative is that Svitolina um, is a rival of hers, similar age. Svitolina is only 19. Sloan had sort of always been ahead of her, stayed ahead of her and had beaten her um, earlier in the year. And now Svitolina gets a win over her. So in that sort of battle of the next generation, Sloan, you know, maybe she's losing a step to, to this player uh, today. The um, the men, they haven't been around mentioned this week at all because there are no ATP tournaments this week. Um, there are instead the four Davis Cup quarterfinal ties. Um you know, we have Switzerland going against Kazakhstan. That's at home to Switzerland. That you know, I don't think you could set the set the 
you know, the numbers high enough for Switzerland in that tie. It's going to have Federer, it's going to have Wawrinka, and the opponent is going to be Kazakhstan. So that's, you know, it, it, it would be shocking if that even went to Sunday. Um, you know, the remaining ties, the Japan-Czech Republic tie lost a bit of luster today when Nishikori, who, you know, he had to withdraw from Miami, he pulls out of the quarterfinal tie. This is a home tie, too. That There was a really good chance for Japan to knock off the Czechs, uh, who are going to be also without Thomas Burdett. So, um, you know, that that's where that sort of injured tie lies. Yeah, the others are, are you know, I, I think the most interesting one you and I talked about was Italy and Great Britain. It's going to be on red clay. Uh, the other tie is Germany at France. France fielding you know, basically an all-star team against Germany. Um, you know, I think, uh, and I think the question really just comes down is how much of a chance do you do you give Great Britain? It's basically their bigger guy, the biggest guy of the tie against sort of a pretty formidable team on Italy. Yeah, that's you know that's the tie to watch. That's going to be, as you say, on red clay. They built a new stadium in Naples. The crowd should be pretty um, revved up for that one. And as you say, it's it's the best player of the group, Murray, basically versus the two solid Italian players, Fognini and Seppi. Fognini's had an injury, but he says he he says he should be able to play. Um, whether he can play three three matches or play long matches, two long singles matches, that could be a question. Um, I would still go with Seppi and Fognini overall on clay. That's their favorite surface at home. Um, I think the Italian fans can make a difference. Um, and, you know, it's a lot, it will be a lot to ask for Murray to win to win those three matches. I mean, he's he could do it, but I would bet I would take Italy in this just based on their Two players who, um, you know, two good players against one very good player. It seems to be seems to favor the the Italians in this. Yeah, and, and we still haven't clearly seen Murray as of right now to the level I think we expect that he'll get to at some point. But you know, thus far, and and on on surfaces that he's been great on in the Australian Open. You know, in Miami, we we just haven't seen that type of form that probably is going to be demanded of Italy in this tie. You know, the, you know. Then again, the only the, you know, I think the the contrary thing to that is, you know, Britain does of course have that nice away win to start off the tie. I don't know if you can expect the the other players besides Murray to kind of give what they gave against the U.S. Um, you know, a U.S. team that was also missing John Isner at the time. Um, and Italy, of course, I mean, it, it's probably foolish to, to entrust yourself in Fabio Fanini in any walk of life. So, yeah, I think for, for clear reasons that that is the best tie of the bunch. And also for no other reason that the winner is almost surely going to get Switzerland. And, you know, depending on where that goes, you know, that really, you kind of think down the road of, of where this Federer-Ravrinka endgame ultimately goes to. And, and if, you know, on the chance that they do play Britain, that would be something. Even Italy, of course, too. Yeah, I think, like you said, it's a tough, it's a tough um, situation for Murray. He hasn't been at his best. He just, he and his coach, Ivan Lendl, just split up and he's going to be on his least favorite surface away. It's going to, you know... That'll take a huge effort. He he had a great effort 
against the U.S., but he also needed um, an upset, James Ward, to pull off an upset over Sam Querrey. They're going to need something like that again, and it seems even less likely against the Italians. The uh, two two players you're not going to be hearing from this weekend, Davis Cup, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, the uh, the other two of the big four. Uh, they just turned 40, as you put it on the site today. You You wrote a piece about kind of where their rivalry stands after 40 matches. You know, what was kind of the thought behind this piece, first of all, for, for people who haven't read it yet? Well, it was just, you know, it, it was at a point right now, if obviously 40 matches is a, is a lot. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a rivalry, that, and it's still going. You know, they're still 20, they're only 27 and 26 years old, and they've already played 40 times. Um, it also seemed like a a good time to assess it. They're 22. Rafa's up 22-18 in the in the head-to-head, so it's close, and it's been getting a little closer over the last few years. Slowly, Djokovic has been closing that, and also, I feel like it's the rivalry right now has swung around in the last six months, full pretty full circle, and a lot more quickly than you might have thought. In September, Nadal beat Djokovic for the third straight time to win the U.S. Open and take over number one from him. It seemed. You know, at that stage, like that, that he was that Rafa may have, um, you know, solved some of his problems against Djokovic on hard courts. He he had also won six of the last seven at that point. Now, but really, what it did, it sort of freed up Djokovic to make his own kind of counterattack, and he's won the last three matches pretty easily, um, which leaves them coming into probably the most important part of the year, the clay season. Uh, seeming, seeming to me to be pretty even. Djokovic maybe a little head in their one one on one, but Nadal still number one in the rankings and still obviously the the you know the the best player on clay. So it seems like we're at a point where you know it'll be interesting to see which way it goes from here. Yeah, well, you know what I wanted to ask really about about the clay portion here is. Um, you know, for the past couple of years, you know, these two have met up at a at a, a lot of the big French Open warm up tournaments. You know, there is obviously, I think, this question that is kind of begging to be answered again of of whether Djokovic has it in him to take down Nadal at the French Open um, after how close he got last year, and now with this more recent surge here. Um, I'm wondering if you would like to. If I'm wondering if you ever think that there is too much of a good thing, perhaps with these two. You know, 40 matches is such a huge number in terms of tennis. Tennis head-to-heads. You know, in your piece, you point out some historic rivalries that really didn't even come close to that number. Um, but I never got the sense that you, you you felt that way about Nadal and Djokovic. I mean, do you want to see these two meet up at, for example, Monte Carlo, Rome, Madrid, and the French Open, or is it just kind of maybe savor when they do? Well, I I um I mean, yeah, you could you could say that maybe they play too many times, but the, a couple times in the past when when Nadal and Federer met up, they met up in Monte Carlo, then they met in Rome, then they met in Paris, and then Djokovic. And the doll have met up at various times on their way to to the French Open. I don't. I didn't. I got the opposite feeling that I wasn't sick of it. I felt like it it really built up over the course of that two months. The the sort of tension between you know and what was going to happen in Paris and and it's played out in a pretty exciting in some pretty exciting matches at the French Open. 
Um, so no, I wouldn't say. I mean, maybe overall, like they play a lot, and I don't think you need to see them. I don't need to see them play every tournament, every final. But in this part of the year, I feel like it. This is a pretty. This is a, a major part of the year for, especially for Djokovic, to try to win the French Open, the only Grand Slam he hasn't won. But seeing them play each, you know, say each week or three times leading into the French Open wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. I think it would. I think it would add something to the season and make people look forward to the French Open more. Very good. Um, like I said, Steve's piece on Rafa Noel turning 40. Uh, check that out on Tennis.com. Up right now, Wednesday, it'll, you know, you'll find it there, among other things, uh, from our team here. So, for Steve Tigner, I'm Ed McGrogan. Tune in next time for the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to tennis.com.